If what we're talking about is not impeachable, then nothing is impeachable. The very idea that a president might seek the aid of a foreign government in his re-election campaign would have horrified them. Preservation of the constitutional order, they seem to be saying, requires an affirmative impeachment vote on these facts. Hi, and welcome to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the courts and the law and the Supreme Court and also justice. And it seems increasingly it's a show about the Constitution and also impeachment. So, like, we have stuff to talk about. This past week, in some ways, provided a pretty stark example of what it might look like were the Constitution itself (laughs) to be put on trial. Certainly, we heard a good deal about law professors and how out of touch, elitist, ivory tower, checked out and just all out boring constitutional law experts really are. America will see why most people don't go to law school. No offense to our professors. But please, really? You may not see this from, you know, like the ivory towers of your law school. If you love America, mamas don't let your babies grow up to go to Harvard or Stanford Law School. We got law professors here. What a start of a party. But we also received, should we choose to receive it, (laughs) an absolute clinic on the framers, impeachment, constitutional drafting, the conventions, impeachable offenses. And we heard it from some of the nation's greatest legal minds. Pamela Carlin and Michael Gerhardt have both been on this show in recent weeks. They were two of the witnesses before the House Judiciary Committee this week. Noah Feldman from Harvard, Jonathan Turley were also on hand for eight hours of testimony and questioning about issues that actually have been at the very heart of this show for months now. And so in some sense, this felt like the perfect opportunity to just stop Listen to these scholars, take stock of what they are saying, where we are, what we have learned, and what the framers were tilting at as they were drafting the impeachment language. And joining us today to do this is one of my very favorite constitutional thinkers, Kate Shaw. Kate teaches law at Cardozo Law School, where she co-directs the Florsheimer Center for Constitutional Democracy. She worked in the White House Counsel's Office in the Obama administration as a special assistant to the president and associate counsel to the president. And if you will recall my tribute show to John Paul Stevens, you may recall that I mentioned you should always, always make friends with the Stevens clerk, if not marry one. Well, they are the kindest, and Kate is that too. Uh, She's also one of for extraordinary hosts of Strict Scrutiny, which we've talked about here before. It is a must-listen podcast for Supreme Court watchers. And she's also, because she is not busy enough, an ABC impeachment commentator. Uh, So she looks much less tired than she ought to. But Kate, welcome to the studio. Welcome to Amicus. Thank you so much, Dahlia. It's great to be here. Kate, last time I had you on this podcast, it feels like eons ago, um, we were discussing presidential speech and um, an early article you had written, I know you've expanded on it, um, about presidential speech acts. It it was in the context of his tweets Mm -hmm. and the travel ban. Um, And I always think of you when Donald Trump says or does something that looks like it could be a speech act or it could just be 
Crazy Talk. And I always think of you and your work, and I know you've built on it a little bit, but I wonder if you could catch us up for a minute on your thinking as it's evolved on this sort of nexus between his tweets, his comments at rallies, uh, things he blurts out on Fox News, yeah. uh, and presidential speech as a kind of performative legal action. Well, there's definitely been a lot more material since we last sat down and talked about this. And I mean, I think that it I think my answer depends a lot on the context and the purpose for which we are asking about the meaning, legal significance of the president's words. Um, and and I think I remain of the general view that most of the time, courts should actually disregard casual utterances made by the president and that that basic presumption is subject to a bunch of really important exceptions. And one of the big ones that I was mostly focused on when we last talked, Alia, um, was cases in which there's some allegation that the president has been motivated by discriminatory intent or some kind of constitutionally impermissible intent, and the president's words might go to establishing that intent. So the travel ban is sort of the paradigmatic example of that. I thought the court was wrong not to take more seriously the president's statements that seem to indicate an anti-Muslim bias in assessing the constitutional permissibility of this travel ban, right? Was it motivated by discriminatory animus or discriminatory intent? Um, and But in, in the kind of category of uh, sometimes actors throughout the political system, courts, executive branch officials actually should disregard the sort of ill-considered, you know, fired off tweets of the president. I mean, I thought we had a pretty interesting example a few weeks ago, although the saga got much more complicated, but with the uh, former Navy SEAL, Eddie Gallagher, who had been charged with war crimes and acquitted of most but convicted of one. And early on, I mean, so again, that sequence of events is really complicated, but there was an early tweet in which the president seemed to be contemplating though not directing that Gallagher be permitted to keep his trident. And it looked as though inside the military, inside the Navy and inside the military, more broadly, the decision was being made to just not treat as legally significant this expression of desire, aspiration, solidarity, whatever it was, this was, it wasn't an order. And I think that was right. I think the military basically did the same thing with the president's first couple of tweets Um suggesting an intent to ban transgender members of the military, either from enlisting or remaining in the military. Um, and in both of those cases, there were many more formal acts that followed. But I actually thought it was right for the government actors in question to essentially set aside, to treat as something other than a legally significant act, these presidential statements, right, um, via Twitter in both cases. Um, so those, so, you know, you have questions about what courts are supposed to do with the president's words, what executive branch actors are supposed to do. Um, and, you know, actually one really kind of at the sort of um, um, you know, bullseye of the news cycle right now is, you know, what the what Congress should do with the president's words. And that is not, I don't think, you know, his public words, his tweets, his public statements are not um, at the heart of the impeachment inquiry, but they're certainly implicated in it. So I do think that, that in terms of my own scholarship, that's something that I've been writing about now for a few months before we were even in these formal impeachment proceedings. What what has what should Congress do and what historically has Congress done in looking at the president's public statements in the context of impeachment proceedings? And, and so this brings me to Andrew Johnson. There's been a whole bunch of like a raft of really great articles um, about Andrew Johnson in the last week or two that uh, have helped illuminate the ways in which that is, in fact, the best template for looking at Trump. I mean, in many, many ways, more so than Clinton, more so than Nixon, that was an attempt to impeach someone for just an inchoate 
bundle of demagoguery, in addition to, you know, obviously discreet acts, but that there was this bucket of things that you're, I think, creeping up to describing, which is just horrible use of words to threaten sitting members of the Senate, to incite violence in some instances. And that seems like it's the closest parallel in some ways when you're trying to gather all the strings here of what it is about Trump that makes people nuts. So many of the actions are just these speech acts that are appalling, and they don't I mean, I think there are speech acts at the heart of the Ukraine question, too. But I just wonder if you could walk us through a little bit the Andrew Johnson as parallel, only because, you know, like here are our, uh, you know, articles of impeachment for, quote, attempt to bring into disgrace, ridicule, hatred, contempt and reproach the Congress. And then articles about the speeches that he was giving and the incitement involved. And I'm just wondering if, you know, when you look at the and there's a long list of articles in the um, Johnson impeachment, which makes it different from Clinton and Nixon as well. But so much of it is just like kind of being a jerk right. with his mouth. <laughs> and and yeah. help me understand if that's closer to what we're looking at and how to how to use Johnson, if at all, yeah. as a frame. You know, I struggle with whether Johnson or Nixon is a better analog. I think there are absolutely elements of both in the sort of cluster of allegations against President Trump. I think you're right um, that there is there are tons of parallels with Andrew Johnson. And so there were 11 articles of impeachment against Andrew Johnson. Nine of them focus on the violation of this statute, the Tenure of Office Act, which he did, of course, violate by firing his war secretary in which um, it's pretty clear was an unconstitutional statute. But um, but both the two articles that explicitly talk about things other than that statutory violation. And I think you're right, the actual underlying motivation of the Republicans in Congress who were the architects of that impeachment um, we're not really about the violation of that statute at all, but much more exactly as you were saying, you know, he was an unfit and racist demagogue. That was why he was impeached. And I do think that the kind of historiography of Johnson for a long time was very sympathetic to Johnson and partly because there were racist historians who believed that he was wronged, but also partly because um, this, you know, this idea that the kind of the, the unconstitutionality of this statute um, undermined the entire effort um, because, you know, several decades later, the Supreme Court strikes down a very similar statute and and that somehow that that there's a profound vindication there. But it, I thought it was interesting. So Turley in his testimony, which I'm sure we'll get to, seems much more sympathetic to the I think now being kind of discredited position that Congress overreached. Johnson was wrong. History has vindicated Johnson. I think that's actually a much more contested proposition than Turley's testimony, at least, uh, seemed to suggest. So I think it's right. There were other reasons for which Johnson was uh, impeached, you know, mostly the kind of racist demagogue. And how how that was manifested was his systematic attempt to undermine Reconstruction, um, vetoing, uh, you know, Civil Rights Act, Freedmen's Bureau's bill, uh, Reconstruction, the Military Reconstruction Act, attempting to undermine ratification of the 14th Amendment, um, you know, attempting to readmit the southern states and to empower former Confederate officials, appointing them governors, things like that. Um, And, um, you know, essentially to hand the South something like a partial victory in the war they had decisively lost. And and that was why he was impeached. Um, You know, it was a much deeper, obviously much more sort of deeper philosophical dispute or disagreement about the future of the country. Um, and, and that, you know, 
you can characterize that as a policy disagreement. You can characterize it as a deep constitutional values a disagreement. It clearly wasn't about the violation of this one statute. And I don't, and the rhetoric, I think, was just one manifestation sort of of that kind of very deep um, divide. And so the problem, I think, with the leaning too heavily on the Johnson metaphor is that the actual, the enumerated offenses were rather flimsy in Johnson, where I think the enumerated offenses that we are likely to see in the articles of impeachment that will be drafted in the coming weeks are far stronger in the case of Trump. So while they, while it is true that there is, I think, um, a lot that Congressional Democrats are animated by, apart from this narrow sequence of events, not so narrow, but sequence of events involving Ukraine, um, they also have a much stronger set of allegations. So I think that's the one reason I would resist leaning too heavily on the Johnson analogy and why I think the Nixon analogy is important because the substantive offenses are quite similar in all kinds of ways. I feel like we've a little bit underappreciated. I want to talk about the sort of nuts and bolts of you know, bribery, treason, high crimes and misdemeanors as the, you know, either too capacious or too narrow, because I think that was in some ways the emerging theme uh, of Wednesday's testimony. But I think right before we get there, I want to ask you one other thing. We asked Frank Bowman when he was on the show, but I think we forget you've really dug into the history of, of how the framers chose the words they chose. And I think we forget both what came before, in other words, what the framers were, what was on the menu for the framers when they were drafting the language of impeachment, what they took out, what they kept in, why they kept it in. And I think that history becomes really important when you're hearing, you know, Professor Carlin and Professor Gerhardt, Professor Fellman, Professor Turley, all talking about whether this high crimes and misdemeanors thing is too broad, too narrow, um, and what goes in. And I, I want to just flag, here's Jonathan Turley in testimony. In the end, various standards that had been used in the past were rejected. Corruption, obtaining office by improper means, betraying the trust of a foreign, to a foreign power, negligence, perfidy, peculation, and oppression. And those are all things that come out, says Turley. So I think that there's a way in which help us understand what the framers were trying to include and what they were explicitly trying to take out that their British forebears had included in impeachment. Sure. And I will say it was so interesting how largely kind of originalist the terrain of the debate during the congressional hearings uh, was. And, you know, I'm not an originalist. You're not an originalist. Pam Carlin is not an originalist. And yet I actually do think this is a sphere in which it is extremely useful to spend some time grappling with the founding era materials, in part because there's so little else to work with, right? Much of the time we have founding era materials and, you know, several hundred years of practice. And it's some combination of kind of examining all of that that I think helps illuminate present meaning. And and here I think we have to do that too, but but we just don't have that many examples to work with. And there is relatively extensive, although, you know, it's spotty, the kind of actual constitutional convention history, but there is some documented history. And, and part of the reason I actually think it's so useful here is because so much originalist debate is kind of cherry picking examples from a very mixed historical record, and both sides can deploy originalist arguments about what people at the time understood or what the framers might have intended, and you kind of end up at a stalemate. And here I don't think that's the case. I actually don't think the evidence is particularly conflicting. It's sometimes a little difficult to parse, but 
it's not so 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 let me actually take your question on uh, head on so you know so so how did they you know before they even get to the language obviously they have to decide whether there's there's going to be an impeachment provision at all and there's actually some debate about that you know there's this argument that they were setting the whole thing up so one of the things they decide is the president will be subject to re-election and for your terms and there is an argument that that is the way to deal with you know the need to expel a president is to expel him through the electoral process vote him out. Yeah. yeah and literally vote him out is on the table yeah. at the constitutional convention and they decide that's not going to be enough, right? Sometimes presidential misconduct is going to be so dangerous and, and you know, and this is key, and sometimes it will involve attempts to manipulate elections to entrench a president in power. So that's not going to work uh, just to rely on elections. Um, so they say we will create an impeachment process. It will include the president, right? In England, there had been impeachments for hundreds of years of, you know, ministers um, and things like that in in the under the king, but the king was not subject to impeachment. So that is a huge and important distinction between American practice and English practice that some of the law professors um, uh, during the uh, Wednesday hearing focused on. And so, yes, we're going to impeach. We're going to have impeachment. And yes, it will include the president. And so then, OK. Oh, and who's going to have the power of impeachment? They think about like maybe the Supreme Court should do it. Maybe some state le- like the majority of state legislators can do it. They decide to give the power to Congress, divide it between the House and the Senate and then write the critical question. Like, so how will we define the kind of conduct that will warrant impeachment? Um, and so, again, there's, you know, there's some records and it's not like a perfect transcription of everything everyone said, right? So there's some selectivity. Um, but they think about, you know, initially, the first proposal is for impeachment for malpractice or neglect of duty. So, you know, like truly just being like really derelict in discharging the duties of the presidency. Um, and... Um, that language quickly gets replaced with treason, bribery, or corruption. So that's actually, you know, a pretty big shift. It's it's pretty broadly agreed that um, malpractice, neglect of duty is just like too low a bar, right? right. That can't be. Who that. among us has not neglected? <laughs> we all have our days. <laughs> um, and so, so then, okay, so then there's a shift to something much more serious, um, you know, treason, bribery, corruption. Corruption ends up getting removed um, and just treason or bribery remains for a little bit. So there's a minute in which that looks like it's going to kind of encompass, you know, these two discrete and serious categories of misconduct. Um, But so then George Mason, who's really an important kind of player in all this, came up a lot on Wednesday, um, adds maladministration, which is like another cut basically at this malpractice neglect of duty um, and had been used in some English impeachments. This term, this had been the charge, maladministration. Um, But that, too, is subject to the objection that it's just, you know, it's not, it doesn't uh, set a high enough bar. So Madison, you know, wants to do something else. He says, why is the provision restrained to treason and bribery? Treason, as defined in the Constitution, will not reach many great and dangerous offenses. But Madison also thinks that maladministration is not quite right. He says, so vague a term will be equivalent to a tenure during pleasure of the Senate, right? The Senate basically can accuse anybody of maladministration, or the House has to accuse, but the Senate could remove anybody. Um, So Mason takes out maladministration, replaces it with high crimes and misdemeanors. Um, And that's sort of it in terms of the, I mean, there there, there are some other um, secondary records, but in terms of the actual, the kind of key, like, Ferrin's records, that seemed, that's that's most of what's recorded. Um, And so... You don't have much more that the framers have said about it during the convention. You sort of look to some of the things that they said. They wrote in the Federalist Papers. They wrote in exchanges of letters, in speeches. And, you know, you begin to get a sense there are a few things that they seem to be most concerned about. And um, one of them is this idea of foreign influence, right? This is a young country. The English and the French are still vying for influence. And the idea that a president could be subject to corruption or influence, undue influence by a foreign government seems to be a huge concern. Imagine. Imagine. <laughs> um, so that seems to be sort of one. Um, two, 
kind of corruption and self-dealing, right? Abuse of office for personal gain of any sort uh, seems to be something that you see come up, um, that there is this, you know, Hamilton in Federalist 68 and 65 um, writes about um, the kind of political nature of the offenses. Offenses in order to be impeachable must be the kind of thing that can be distinctly done by public men, he says, you know, that can be denominated political. So, like, you know, you and I can't do impeachable things, right? Like you have to have a certain kind of governmental power to abuse at all. Um, But so abuse of power, abuse of authority, you sort of see that at the heart. And then there are a number of things said in uh, in various venues that do suggest that a president's attempts to entrench himself in power um, are also the kind of thing that might warrant impeachment. So the kind of election and election manipulation um, is also something that comes up. So you sort of take stock of the kind of roughly contemporaneous commentary. And, and there actually is, I think, a pretty consistent set of themes that you see arising. And, and, and two things that I think are, are implicit in what you said, but let's tug at them a little, Kate. One is, I think it's really important to expressly note that the framers had the whole range of really dire consequences under the British impeachment regime, including beheading and seizure of lands. And they took all that off the table. They wanted it to be really clear that in their minds, this is not a heavy lift. Like, this is a thing that could happen. This was not the death penalty. This was a misdemeanor. Right. I think that's uh, also a, a hugely important point. They they did think they were kind of civilizing and domesticating what had been a pretty savage kind of remedy in England. And as you said, sometimes a capital offense. Um, and that's, they were really clear that what this is, like, it's serious. The bar is high. We should, you know, try to be specific about what the kind of conduct is. But if the worst happens, you lose your job. Like, this is about job loss. And again, I don't want to minimize the seriousness of impeaching a president. It's hugely serious. But it is the consequences were very, um, very explicitly and in a very considered way limited to two things, removal from office and potential disqualification from future office holding, which is understood as requiring a separate vote in the Senate. So impeachment doesn't necessarily mean you can never hold public office again, but the Senate can choose to take that separate step. And that is it in terms of the consequences of impeachment. And and the other thing that I, I'd ask you to just unpack for one second, again, implicit in what you've said, but I think it, it, it gets us a little bit down the Turley rabbit hole when Jonathan Turley is talking about bribery and he's talking about, uh, you know, a Supreme Court case that is implicates a very narrow bribery statute that is a tiny chunk of the bribery, the vast panoply of bribery-related conduct. One of the things that you're saying is these are not crimes that Kate and Dahlia could do. These are very much facing elected officials uh, in certain contexts. And I think one of the reasons this gets difficult is that we're trying to map this onto something universal, right? All Americans can commit, you know, high crimes and misdemeanors. And I think the point was they were building, in some sense, a separate canon of law that was directed only at an impeachment. And and help me figure out how when you start talking about, you know, was he jaywalking? Did he mug someone? That's not 
super helpful in terms of thinking through what the framers were worried about. Right. Well, first of all, there's not even a federal criminal code at the time that they're doing this drafting. So they certainly can't have been meaning to peg like the word bribery to anything in federal law. There was nothing. And um, but there were basic elements of common law bribery. And that is basically what Noah Feldman testified to. You know, what are you doing? You are corruptly demanding something in exchange for some kind of official act. If you're a public official doing bribing, if you're a private person, you can bribe too. But, you know, that's a little bit different. Um, And those are the basic elements. And it is true, those basic elements do end up getting incorporated into the federal bribery statute. Um, But the statute as it's written and as the Supreme Court has interpreted it is in no way binding on Congress in these proceedings. Now, um, and I think even Turley, who, of course, is the GOP witness during this hearing, says pretty categorically, you don't need to have a crime. So I actually think that there was during, say, the Nixon impeachment, which was the first modern impeachment, and everybody kind of had to go back to the drawing board and say, like, what is what does this all mean? And there was a pretty active debate, like, does it have to be something that we can point to in the criminal code? So I think there was more of a division of opinion about it back in 73, 74. And I don't think today there's that much of uh, that strong a camp that believes that impeachable conduct needs to be criminal. I think it is pretty broadly agreed upon that you can look to guidance from the criminal code and there are criminal law principles that may inform this analysis. And there have been criminal offenses, although also non-criminal offenses, enumerated in the articles of impeachment that we have had against the three presidents who've had articles approved against them. Um, But none of that is binding on Congress. And, And I do think that Surely the McDonald case that you reference, you know, is this case that absolutely does narrow the reach of the federal bribery statute involving this uh, governor in Virginia. And I think it narrows it too much. Like, I don't, you know, um, I think it does make it very difficult to reach official corruption. Um, but that can't constrain what Congress can do here. And I don't I don't even think that Turley really was making the argument that it should. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. We know you value the journalism that we do here at Slate, and we actually need your support to do it. We need your support to make this show and all the other journalism we do at Slate as great and prolific as it can be. By joining our membership program, Slate Plus, you will be supporting that work, and you will enjoy all the benefits of membership, like listening to this show ad-free. Slate Plus members are right now listening to Kate Shaw and I discussing impeachment and the Constitution. They are not listening to commercials. And if you sign up for Slate Plus, you get access to bonus segments and extended versions of your very favorite Slate shows. It's only $35 for your first year, and you can sign up free for two weeks to check it out first. Sign up for Slate Plus and help us to secure Slate's future. To learn more and to begin your free two-week trial, go to slate.com slash amicus plus. And now back to our conversation with Professor Kate Shaw from Cardozo Law School. So so now you've set up, let's say, two benchmarks that I think are exactly at the heart of Turley's critique here. And that is one, these are president-facing. These are not 
crimes that we could all understand. These are unique to this office. And two, it's kind of fluid. We don't know. There's not a, a statutory impeachment crimes and misdemeanors place to look. And Turley takes both of those to say, thus, you're just going after the president and you're going after him for a bunch of vague crap that you don't like about him. And if I follow what you've just said, that's in some sense true. The framers, by design, made it specific to the president and made it unbelievably vague. Well, I think that Carlin had a great answer to this question, which is, of course, they didn't provide a list of, you know, potential impeachable high crimes and misdemeanors because they couldn't possibly have imagined the kind of ingenuity, right, of man, you know, interested in misconduct. And so, you know, the Watergate break-in is about installing or actually, you know, moving wiretapping equipment. They didn't list that because there were no wires. <laughs> there was no wiretapping. Or a Watergate. There was nothing. <laughs> nothing. It's no. just swamp. Right. But there is, you know, there are these broad principles and those can get expression through descriptions of the kind of misconduct that sort of touch at the point of impeachment, right? The kinds of very serious egregious abuse of office, self-dealing, and potentially including elements of foreign interference and election manipulation, which, of course, not the foreign interference piece, but that Watergate was about just a physical version of trying to hurt a political opponent, right? This is the DNC's headquarters that these burglars are attempting to install equipment into to record, you know, this is about the pending presidential election and, uh, you know, the attempt to to dig up dirt in some sense on a political rival like you know so those parallels are, i think are, are quite strong um but i think that what the founding history is best used for is the broad principles and um beyond that kind of the present prism is going to be really important in identifying and then evaluating the specific you know, allegations of misconduct um let's listen to um michael gerhardt for a minute he's making i think the mirror image point of Turley's point, which is, in effect, if we can't impeach for this, we can't impeach for anything. So let's listen. If what we're talking about is not impeachable, then nothing is impeachable. This is precisely the misconduct that the framers created a constitution, including impeachment, to protect against. And I wonder if, Kate, the, the, the in some sense, he's making the broadest possible version of the counter argument to Turley, which is, oh, my God, look at these facts. This implicates every single thing the framers worried about, including election integrity, including foreign interference, including corruption and abuse of power. If not this, then the president is untouchable. And in a sense, it's as extreme an argument, you know, on the other side, right? I, I, and it's I think it's not just Gerhardt. I think that Carlin and Feldman make you mm-hmm. know some version of the same argument, which is not just that these facts would justify impeachment, but that these facts require you to impeach, right? That it's kind of mandatory looking as they understand the Constitution's standards. Um, And of course, you know, like I don't think anybody thinks it is literally mandatory that there would be some constitutional violation on the part of the members of Congress if they didn't vote to impeach him. But that preservation of the constitutional order, they seem to be saying, requires an affirmative impeachment vote on these facts. And that's, you know, and I think that's in part this kind of pragmatic argument that there is a really important deterrence uh, interest that is advanced by sending a clear message, even if it is one that gets voted on party lines, that, um, you know, another branch of government deems 
constitutionally impermissible, this kind of conduct. And maybe that sends some kind of message to this president and to future presidents about the unacceptability of reengaging in this sort of activity. Um, I want to talk about Pam Carlin for a minute Um, in many ways because she becomes the focus of the hearings. uh, Initially, she just opens by excoriating uh, ranking member Doug Collins for his implication that she had not read uh, all of the prior testimony. She made plain she had bad turkey uh, on Thanksgiving (laughs) because she was reading, uh, fiercely reading every word of the testimony. Um, And then later because uh, Republicans on the committee chose to really go after her. Uh, for contributions, for jokes she had made uh, on podcasts, uh, for alleged bias, um, and and that uh, has blown up in in the intervening time. Uh, Noah Feldman and Michael Gerhardt somehow escaped the worst of that, and and maybe any let, theories on why? Well, I I, I mean I'm going to speculate, but I'd like to hear. Let's listen for one minute to um, the difference between uh, Matt Gates, a uh, Republican from Florida. Um, colloquy with Noah Feldman and then with Pam Carlin. Yes, I did write that article. And in article. that article, in, did you write, did you write hold on, I'm limited on time. Sir. I wrote did you that write, article. since, in, since the like 2018 the midterm sir? election, House Democrats have made it painfully clear that discussing impeachment is primarily or even exclusively a tool to weaken President Trump's chances in 2020. Did you write those words? Until this call in July 25th, I was an impeachment skeptic. The Very call well. changed I, my mind, sir, and for Thank good you. Reason. I appreciate your testimony. You may not see this from, you know, like the ivory towers of your law school, but it makes actual people in this country when feel the like, excuse calls me, me, you don't get to interrupt me on this time. But before we talk about Carlin Kwa, Carlin, I, I do want to say, I think she makes this point, I tried to make it in print last week, saying the just vote him out doesn't work for precisely the reason the framers were worried about, which is he is actually imperiling free and fair elections. And she makes this point quite explicitly. The founding generation, like every generation of Americans since, was especially concerned to protect our government and our democratic process from outside interference. For example, John Adams during the ratification, expressed concern with the very idea of having an elected president, writing to Thomas Jefferson that you are apprehensive of foreign interference, intrigue, influence. So am I. But as often as elections happen, the danger of foreign influence recurs. And in his farewell address, President Washington warned that history and experience prove that foreign influence is one of the most baneful foes of Republican government. And he explained that this was in part because foreign governments would try and foment disagreement among the American people and influence what we thought. The very idea that a president might seek the aid of a foreign government in his re-election campaign would have horrified them. So, Kate, I'm going to ask you, if you could... Make the best argument you can, drawing a line, as Professor Carlin really did, between voting and the right to free and fair elections and the impeachment charges being leveled against the president. I guess another way to say that is, why is the claim that just vote him out in 2020 not sufficient if you're Pam Carlin? 
Yeah, you know, so when I saw the list of law professors who'd be testifying, I was actually a little surprised to see Pam Carlin on it. I mean, she's an extraordinary litigator and writer and thinker and teacher, um, but she hadn't really written about impeachment. And so um, I I wasn't quite sure what role she was going to serve on the panel, but she is one of the foremost scholars of the law of democracy. She writes about elections. Like, this is at the core of her expertise. I mean, she's a constitutional law expert more broadly, but this really is her area. And as soon as I saw the statement, I was like, oh, of course, this actually makes perfect sense and is quite a brilliant choice um, because, the, you know, promoting access to the ballot and um, the integrity of American democracy, like, is kind of her life's work. Her brief stint in the Obama administration was doing Voting Rights Act enforcement, but and she's written the leading casebook on the law of democracy. So the constitutional and statutory and regulatory regime around the administration of elections and um, the preservation of democracy is what she is most expert in. And so that is what she spoke to. She spoke to other things too, um, but she seemed to kind of try to reorient this debate uh, toward the integrity and legitimacy of our elections and thereby our democracy. And that this was not just a corrupt shakedown for the president's personal benefit in some, you know, financial sense or familial sense. It wasn't that kind of personal benefit. It was personal benefit to the detriment of the integrity of our elections. And and that, I thought, was this very powerful point that had been not totally lost, but hadn't been really the focus of the impeachment debate until her testimony. And that is, I think, where she really tried to focus things. Um, and, and I wonder if maybe just uh, as a segue from that to, to Jonathan Turley again, his argument, as best as I understood it, was a version. <laughs> there was one part where he just didn't want us to be mad and his dog is mad. Um, we can debate that. But I think there was secondarily this process argument. Too fast, too narrow, just rushing into it, uh, and therefore somehow it looks to be mean-spirited and uh, opportunistic. And and I wonder if part of the – I mean, there are a lot of flaws with that theory, but part of the th- – I think the problem that I had immediately was he was writing off all the obstruction, right? He was just saying, let's let the courts work this out. And that has to be just as a purely descriptive matter incorrect that people who just say, eh, screw the subpoena, put it in my top drawer, not showing up, that that's something that the courts have to decide and that there's something unseemly about not allowing this to be slow walk through the courts. That's the problem with his process argument is that it elides the fact that the sole power of impeachment is given to the Congress. Yeah. And, you know, so a few things about Turley. One, I thought it was striking that he didn't suggest even any real substantive defense of the misconduct alleged, right? He says, you know, it was clearly not a perfect phone call. And um, it might well be the case that under some circumstances, trying to coerce a foreign government into a, a domestic political errand might well be impeachable. So right. those things are, I think, important stipulations. But you're right. You know, his his main objection seemed to be um, too fast, record too thin, stop and wait for the courts. And it was a little odd because he started out by saying, I'm a Madisonian. I side with Congress in these separation of powers disputes. And then he sort of pivoted to say, Nothing else matters. You guys just do, you know, just wait. You guys just sit, you know, do something else, pass some laws. And then eventually the courts will rule and then you can kind of get started. And, you know, I I don't I'm not sure where that even comes from. So I think that you're right. Conceptually, there's a real problem in that the Constitution assigns to the House the sole power of impeachment. And um, there's no requirement that it use courts in aid of its exercise of that power. Um, And yet it is, of course, right that 
that discrete disputes over subpoenas that are being defied can and are playing out in the courts. Um, but there is just a real practical dimension to, I think, the House's calculation that it's not going to just pause and wait for courts to definitively rule on all this, which is that, A, as we've been saying, part of the point is the preservation of the integrity of this November election. And it's extremely unlikely that courts would be able to rule on all of this well in advance of that you know, rapidly advancing date. And so I think they think it's important to see this process through not just before November, but kind of well before November. And so it has to move relatively quickly. Um, and I think you're right that Turley just, I didn't really hear him acknowledge anywhere that the reason that the Congress has it has, you know, been denied access to a lot of these um, key witnesses is that the White House has mounted this uh, complete blockade of access to witnesses, the ones who would have the most firsthand knowledge of the events at issue. And so the White House stonewalling seems just absent from Turley's narrative in a way that I, I found weakened it overall. I mean, sure, he's right. It would be better for Congress to have access to these witnesses. And there are two ways for that to happen, right? One is to litigate this, which will take many, many months. And two is, you know, he could direct some of his rhetoric at the administration and suggest that another way to have a full and fair consideration of all of the relevant facts is for the White House to simply lift this block and allow witnesses to come forward. And there has been this kind of suggestion that maybe in the Senate there'll be, but but it just feels like a lot of games right now. And I, and I just thought that was a missed opportunity on Turley's part. If his genuine interest is get all the facts out, if they warrant impeachment, then go forward with impeachment. But there's just another kind of missing target of that rhetoric in right, the White House. Right. That the, the bad actor here, in his view, is the Congress with no recognition that there's another bad actor, which is stymieing the ability to get the kind of fuller information and, and thicker record that he wants. Exactly. And it was weird that he starts the clock at the clock starts the day Nancy Pelosi announces impeachment, not the day these broad, broad, you know, unprecedented yeah. arguments about uh, privilege and about uh, cooperation. You know, Clinton cooperated, Nixon cooperated. There's as, no no flaw there. Right. And as Nadler said in his opening, I mean, Clinton cooperated with his blood, right? Like yeah. he gave a blood sample to a White House doctor for DNA testing of Monica Lewinsky's blue dress. And now that's with the Ken Starr. It's not, you know, congressional investigators directly. But there was a lot of cooperation in the two modern presidential impeachments. Even Nixon, who had an obstruction article approved against him, uh, Gerhardt's testimony makes clear that this obstruction is far, far more serious than the Nixon era obstruction. And, and Gerhardt, you know, can cite this stuff chapter and verse. Like he knows it inside and out. And so when he says this is far more, he said on both the substance and the obstruction, this is way worse than Nixon. And I don't think he's prone to hyperbole. I mean, I don't know him really, but I think he's a moderate and measured and careful guy. And I thought that was really quite striking that he, he drew that comparison so starkly in favor of President Nixon and against President Trump. I don't know. He was on the show, the, the last show, and he, he went off on a tiny nihilist aside, and I had to smash my head on the table and get okay. But yes, no, he is not uh, prone to hyperbole. Um, I wonder if, before we move on, I just want to ask you to clarify, we, we've got a new bat phone feature uh, where we call experts. And one of the, the, the questions we had after Professor Gerhardt was on the show last time was about the Senate's impeachment trial. And I know that you're you're looking at the, the sort of historical precedents, but I wonder if you could talk for one minute about who decides? We know it's wide open. Set, you know, Senate sets the rules wide open. They can do what they want. They could not have a trial at all. 
But I did get a bunch of listener questions saying, as between what, you know, Larry Tribe had said on the show, Walter Dellinger has said on the show, Michael Gerhardt has said on the show, to what degree can the chief justice override any decisions that the Senate may make about its protocols and powers? Do you know? Yeah, I mean, I think in theory, he could probably make all the calls himself if he wanted to. I the think Chief that, Justice I think he could. could just say, we're going to subpoena Don McGahn and I don't care what Mitch McConnell says? I don't think anything forecloses it. I think there is zero chance that any of that will happen. Okay. Yeah. I, th- I think in theory, he can kind of shape the role as he sees fit. Um, I think that uh, Salmon Chase, not Samuel Chase, who was the impre- impeached Supreme Court justice from the early, like 1804, 1805, but the chief justice who presided over the Andrew Johnson trial actually did take a fairly active role. Um, but Chief Justice Rehnquist was quite hands off in the Clinton trial. And I think, I presume that Chief Justice Roberts will um, take that lead. Obviously, his you know predecessor and former boss, Chief Justice Rehnquist, who presided, you know, and largely stayed out of the way of the Clinton trial, um, I think he will view as having kind of set the modern standard. So I presume that a majority of the senators will vote to make these substantive calls about subpoenaing witnesses and the, some of the specifics of the kind of timetable and structure of the trial. But I don't think anything forecloses the chief justice from asserting himself if he wants to. That said, I think he wants as far away from the spotlight as he could possibly get. Right. My version of this in my head, Kate, is I just imagine him presiding, but like with a big brown bag over his head and possibly <laughs> like a bottle with a bendy straw and some vodka, but like no interest yeah. in being the star of this show. And I think that, you know, again, I think there's a lot of speculation among some of our listeners that sending questions that are like, can't he use this to take control of Mitch McConnell and the notion of him in a battle of egos or political will with Mitch McConnell strikes me as much more likely the bendy straw on the vodka. Right? I, I go with bendy straw. Okay. Okay. No stripes on the brown bag either. Like, no, this is a plain <laughs> monochromatic brown bag. Um, yeah. Okay. All right. We're in agreement. Now, now I want to ask you, um, I just want to ask you one sort of uh, big pan way back question. You've been uh, commenting on this for ABC, and you've been seeing the same split screen that I have been seeing, not just through this week's hearings, but certainly through uh, the Intelligence Committee, where one side is just chalupa, chalupa, Ukraine, you know, if this is all so bad, uh, uh, read the Hill, read Politico, you know, it is clear, Biden, Biden, Burisma, and that endlessly uh, on a loop and no real engagement with any of the conduct uh, surrounding uh, uh, Ukraine gate as we think of it, and also no real acknowledgement that uh, those things are impeachable, even if. Uh, And then I think, you know, poor Nancy Pelosi and Jonathan Schiff and this week Jerry Nadler just being, but look, but look, this happened. It's undisputed that it happened. And I think one of the things that was really striking to me was despite Doug Collins, here's Doug Collins again, the the ranking uh, uh, Republican on the committee saying there's no facts. Let's listen. This will also be one of the first impeachments. The chairman mentioned there was two of them one that before he resigned before the one in Clinton, in which the facts, even by Democrats and Republicans, were not really disputed. And this one, they're not only disputed, they're contradicted of each other. There are no set facts here. In fact, they're not anything that presents an impeachment here, except a president carrying out his job in the way the Constitution saw that he sees fit to do it. Despite him saying there are no facts, in, in truth, the facts are almost completely 
uncontrovertible. Everybody agrees on them. Almost every witness, including some who you can say hearsay, hearsay, but Vindman heard the call, right? Sondland heard the call. I mean, these are firsthand fact witnesses. How do we get through, and this is just a like, hold me, Kate Shaw question, but like, how do we get through, I think Michelle Goldberg's word for it is epistemological nihilism. There's just no truth. Nothing is knowable. So we're just going to just say a lot of words. Um, And and if, in fact, that's what we're watching, this is what makes it different from Watergate, right? Three networks, everybody watching at night, 71% of Americans agree on at least the facts. All the critiques of Adam Schiff, of Nancy Pelosi this week, heavy critiques of Jerry Nadler for not making good television, uh, for not somehow corralling the facts in such a way that Rush Limbaugh rocks back in his chair and goes, you know, they got him dead to rights. (laughs) Like He did it and it's over. What is the mission? What is the mission for the people who I think you believe, I believe this is necessary for existential reasons that we've both laid out? Not doing this is to allow more election interference. But what is the programmatic recommendation for you to what has to happen in order to get us past split-screen America? I mean, that is literally the question of our moment. (laughs) and I wish I had a a better answer to it, you know? I mean, I think it is, we are sort of at the nadir, I think, in the House. I think that this, we're not going to see quite these just wildly diametrically opposed versions of reality in the Senate. And there is some small comfort there. Maybe this is me being unduly optimistic. But I think it's the case that, you know, if the Democrats could try to get this message across that it is not as though there are any competing witnesses. All the witnesses are in agreement. The GOP witness, Jonathan Turley, the GOP called witnesses before the Intelligence Committee, right? Foker, um, Morrison. I can't remember who called Sondland. Sondland was their witness too. In any event, the witnesses who were ostensibly more sympathetic both to the president and to the Republicans who called them are all in broad agreement as to the facts that, you know, Russia, not Ukraine, interfered in 2016, that attempting to drum up an investigation into the participation of U.S. persons with this Ukrainian company was improper, that linking all that to official government acts was improper. Literally no one who sat on the witness side of these hearing rooms disputed that at all. Uh, You know, questions about proximity to firsthand events and and statements, sure, those exist. But on the substantive facts, there's literally no disagreement. It just feels to me as though you won't quite have the same alternative reality version of the facts that no one has testified to when we get to the Senate, as we have seen in the House, at least in terms of a unified front. Like you haven't even really seen Republicans of the more of more moderate stripes, those who are retiring people like Will Hurd, haven't been sort of striking quite like a Devin Nunes and Doug Collins note, but haven't been as far from that as I would have expected. And I have to believe there are at least a handful of senators who dwell in a more reality-based universe. But as I say those words, I'm not sure I even believe them, right? Like siloed media environment is a huge part of this problem. And Nothing that we are going to say sitting right here is going to change that. I mean, I hope people who dwell in other media silos will are listening to your podcast, Dahlia. Desperately hope that. There's there's two of them. Oh, that's great. And do they email you? 
<laughs> no, that's just my best. Guess. Okay, <laughs> my best guess is too. But I, but I also, you know, I do think there is a way in which, and I guess this is my last question on the sort of like existential despair front. But I, I do think there's a way in which, you know, Devin Nunes actually being implicated this week, Rudy Giuliani seemingly running around Ukraine, continuing the conspiracy. Uh, you know, I think that there is a weird way in which this is. Uh, uh, almost a battle about who's just willing to keep doubling down. And I thought actually Pam Carlin's language of doubling down was really interesting, that there is some constraint uh, at work on the Democrats on the committee, uh, you know, beyond just like we are going to try to adhere to truth and we are going to try to adhere to whatever norms still exist. But I think that there is an amazing sort of backfilling of truth happening as you and I are sitting here talking. There is an attempt and you're seeing a growing, burgeoning acceptance that this Ukraine theory, Ukraine meddled in the 2016 election, that now we've got Rudy Giuliani doubling down. No, this is really about Joe and Hunter Biden. This is about actual corruption, a willingness to kind of retrofit history to fit uh, this narrative that is actually happening in real time as their impeachment hearings going on. It's extraordinary. One thing I'll say that's that's related to that, but slightly distinct, is that I think that you're right that there is, although ostensibly the major fact-finding piece of this proceeding has sort of ended with the end of the Intelligence Committee hearings, there is action on the ground and there may be other shoes to drop. And part of that has to do with... Um, you know, these former business associates of Rudy Giuliani, who've both been indicted, um, Fruman and Parnas, there's, I think, a very non-zero chance that some substantial cooperation in the criminal proceedings also involves some potential cooperation in these impeachment proceedings, and that we do learn a lot of new facts that shake things up in some way or shake a handful of people loose. I mean, water, it happened like very slowly and then all at once. And I, I do think that well, you know, most the, the most likely scenario is that there's no hugely dramatic reveals that really change the narrative and the kind of trajectory of all this. I think there is a, a very non-zero possibility that that's wrong and that things do change significantly. And that even could happen in the Senate, like a Senate trial with new witnesses who reveal new information could change things. So I just think that the situation is, I mean, I, I take the sort of pessimism and nihilism. I'm there with you some of the time. Thanks, pal. Um, but I think that it's a pretty dynamic situation. And um, I don't feel confident that I totally know how the story ends. Before I let you go, I, I have to circle back to Pam Carlin, um, because I had the experience watching uh, the hearings on Wednesday that I suspect you did, you know, that at some point I felt my shoulders <laughs> kind of rucking up to my ears again, as I did during the Kavanaugh hearing, and, and thought to myself, this is yet again a kind of singular wrath and fury poured upon a woman who speaks and that I want to believe that the joke about, you know, whether whether uh, Donald Trump should uh, be have the power to make his son a baron, you know, maybe that was, in fact, the greatest sin against presidential children in American history. Um, we can talk about that. But I, I do think that even absent that, there was just a, a, a next level antipathy directed at her. And I wonder if you just have any thoughts at all about the ways in which this feels 
to me like of a piece with Fiona Hill. Uh, This feels like Lisa Page. This feels like a long line of women who have the temerity to walk and breathe and have political voices in America. And uh, one, I'm hesitant to gender it. And I know that your job on strict scrutiny is often to be the voice of like, no, 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 let's let's be um, temperate. But it was hard not to see it uh, through that valence. Oh, I think it's gendered. I mean, I think I think it, it is also the case that she is um, of the witnesses. I think that the other three, you know, Turley is sort of, um, you know, hard to pin down ideologically. And I do think that both Feldman and Gerhardt are pretty moderate. Um, And Pam is not, right? I think that she is um, an avowed progressive and an uncowed progressive. And so to some degree, she's in a slightly different category just based on her substantive views and public positions from the others. But the kind of nastiness obviously feels gendered to me and does feel of a piece with them. You didn't mention uh, Ambassador Yovanovitch, but the president singling out by name during her testimony um, of Ambassador Yovanovitch was totally distinct from anything that happened with respect right. to and, any and of the other witnesses. Her, right? I mean, was, and, I, and I presume that they're at least thinking about including some aspect of that episode in the kind of general obstruction of Congress um, article that they are drafting. It seems like at least a you know candidate shift talked about witness intimidation in real time that day. Um, so so I do think that there has been a singling out of the women who have testified in the course of these proceedings in a way that does not feel at all accidental. Um, you know, on the barren point, I will I will say that you know I was a former I was a White House lawyer, and White House lawyers are psycho protective of presidential. Children and White Houses in general are, and they do want to keep them out of the public eye. But, but this was not a serious offense against that general principle. It was like a casual joke that was um, quickly, you know, recanted and um, and yet sort of seized upon and amplified in a way that was just like wildly outsized and felt quite bad faith to me because it, of course, required the you know to return to doubling down the kind of reinjection of his name and right. figure Don't into public discourse yep. Yep. um you know and that's of course the white house doing and amplifying that in a way that felt really inconsistent with this general principle that was ostensibly animating it would just leave the kids out of this um so then it felt like he was just kind of this cudgel um but but uh, you know i'm I, I totally agree that it felt um, both personal uh, and gendered with Pam. And that's, I think, irrespective of sort of any ideological distinction you could draw between her and the other witnesses. And can you give us 30 seconds on what you're looking for in the next couple of weeks? I'm fascinated by the kind of president's response to all of this. You know, he had this tweet a few weeks ago, which is like, I never thought my name would be associated with that ugly word impeachment. Um, and um, <laughs> um, it's sort of like Because the, Diet Coke is what yeah, I want. <laughs> my name associated with. Um, and... And it, it struck me that, you know, he one of I think the, the president has obviously smashed norms left and right in the course of the last almost three years now more right campaign too, And um, one of the things I think that has been revealed is how central a role shame plays in kind of creating the glue that holds some of these norms in place. Part of the reason we avoid norm violation or at least flagrant norm violation is because there'll be some like sort of social sanction and shame that will attach to doing that. And the president has been largely impervious to that, I think. Um, and yet it felt like here he feels it, like the impeachment process is getting to him in a way that I was frankly a little surprised to see. And maybe I'm reading way too much into this one tweet. I obviously spent too much time thinking about presidential Twitter. Um, but 
But this is not something that he is sort of casually either laughing off or thinking about how to spin to his political advantage. I think that um, that he understands on some level uh, sort of the magnitude and the gravity and that there is something actually constructive in that if part of the point is symbolic and expressive, if in fact it's likely to lead to an acquittal in the Senate anyway. Um, and so I think that if sending a message is part of what the House thinks it may be doing, if it doesn't believe it's very likely to actually succeed in getting him removed in the Senate, his response feels to me like it matters. That's a subtext of some of the testimony. More of this will happen. More of this could be happening now. And is it does he picked up the phone right after the Mueller the right? Next day. Yeah, I mean yeah. it's 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 he has he definitely has a Pavlovian right. Yeah. He's trainable is what you're saying. I don't know, but it feels to me like there is some possibility and if that's the case that feels like um an important dimension of this kind of irrespective of what happens in the Senate how he reacts to this happening as it continues to play out in real time. Kate Shaw teaches law at Cardozo Law School, where she co-directs the Florsheimer Center for Constitutional Democracy. She worked in the Obama White House Counsel's Office. Uh, She is, uh, as I keep saying, one of those delicious Stevens clerks that we keep welcoming onto the show. Uh, She's one of the four extraordinary hosts of Strict Scrutiny, which you should all uh, immediately, immediately subscribe to, and an ABC impeachment commentator. She's also an all-round brilliant, brilliant, smart thinker about the court and gave us a lot of time today. Kate, thank you for being with us. I am definitely going to add delicious Stephen's clerk to like a res- oh resume my line God. or something. I'm surprised that's you don't like, have t-shirts. That's the nicest thing anyone's Why don't ever you have t-shirts? <laughs> okay, I'm on it. I'm doing it. <laughs> thank you so much for having me, Dahlia. This was really fun. I have a little postscript for you, dear listeners. Remember our term opener way back uh, when we talked to Dean Irwin Chemerinsky and we wondered aloud how John Roberts was going to navigate a term that included a staggering number of big ticket blockbuster cases as John Roberts possibly presided over an impeachment trial in the Senate? Well, there are some clues emerging, including uh, from arguments heard this week in a big Second Amendment case before the court. We want to dig in to that case, this week's arguments, and put them into a larger context with the rest of the cases that have been heard since October with Slate's own Mark Joseph Stern, who has a wonderful book out that is pretty germane. It's called American Justice 2019, The Roberts Courts Arrives. And that will be our very first show of 2020. So if you have questions about John Roberts, how he's handling the cases so far, that gun case in particular, or just the fact that the court has bitten off a lot more than it might be able to chew this term, send them along to amicus at slate.com or find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. We love your letters. That is a wrap for this episode of Amicus. Thank you so much for listening. Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham. Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Podcasts. And June Thomas is senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. We will be back with another episode of Amicus in two short weeks. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.